Hey listeners, Sean Alexander here. Today's episode, we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Jerry Franklin. There was so much to be discussed that this episode ended up being almost two hours long. To make things easier, we decided to split this episode into two parts. So make sure and check out part two for the conclusion of the story. Jerry shares his thoughts on working forests, forest functionality, the Northwest plan, and some of his favorite books to read. A quick heads up for some of our listeners, there are a few swear words included in this episode. Enjoy. Uh, it was really uh, a lot of, of what I call epiphanies. Uh, dead trees are important. Uh, old growth forests are very productive. They just aren't adding a whole lot more uh, boards, uh, but they're very productive systems. And you know, there's so much green out there. We should have known that right at the beginning uh, because anytime you got green, you got productivity. And if you got a lot of green, you have a lot of productivity. Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WCU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire Chapter. Jerry, you got yourself a cup of coffee or tea there? Yep. All ready to go? Perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming out today to the eighth episode of the Forest Overstory. Today, we're joined by a very special guest. We're joined by Dr. Jerry Franklin. Jerry, you have quite the, the history in this field, and I don't even really know how to fully explain everything you have done in a single sentence, <laughs> but I'll, I'll actually try. I pulled up your curriculum, uh, Vitae, Vitae, I've never actually heard the pronunciation on that, <laughs> yeah. Vita. Um, and so you actually graduated in, let's see, 1966 with a PhD in botany and soils from Washington State University. You that are is, a Kugelum. That is correct. Yeah. And did, did you study under Rex Daubenmeyer? I did. Wow. What, what was he like as a person? Uh, he was very reserved kind of a person. He was friendly enough to talk with, but he, um, he I, I would say, you know, he was, he was fairly reserved. Uh, he didn't share a lot of himself, uh, but he was very, he was very good. He taught me a lot. I have no regrets at all that I, I did my PhD with him. Looking back, you know, to, you know, 1966, you know, one of the things for our listeners Rex Dobemeyer was famous for was um, he was really well known for his classification of grassland fire ecology. And he was really known for, he created a methodology of measuring uh, a vegetation area for sampling called the, the Dobemeyer method. Um, and, you know, th this was really new. I mean, ecology and the science of ecology particularly was uh, really blowing up in that time period. Looking back, I mean, wh what, do you, what do you feel has changed the most from, you know, how we study ecology in 1966 compared to 
2022? Well, it's changed pretty dramatically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, I I went up to uh, actually study with him and learn his approach to vegetation classification. And um, he was also very well known uh, for classification of forest vegetation. So not just rangeland, although he'd Mm. done both the the grasslands and the forest. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, that's, uh, that's what I went up to learn from him. But, and uh, you know, I kind of had a, a ambition that I was going to be the world-leading ecologist on on a subalpine forest. <laughs> That's what I was going to do. Uh, but uh, it did wasn't very many years after I got my PhD that a thing called the International Biological Program showed up, and the Uh, U.S. was very slow at getting into the IBP, but eventually they did, and they were able to to get uh, an earmark on the National Science Foundation's budget for uh, the international biological, the U.S. part of the IBP. And uh, the, the the central element of the U.S. IBP was a study of four different ecosystems. And the object was to study these ecosystems and begin to develop models of these systems and how they worked. And um, there was a guy down at Colorado State that was a leader in, in that uh, fellow by the name of George Van Dyne. Anyway, uh, one of the six biomes that was going to be studied, they were going to study an eastern forest, they were going to study a grassland, they were going to study an alpine tundra, they were going to study a a, um, desert, and they were going to have, they were going to fund a study of uh, the western coniferous forest biome. Mm And... um, University of Washington kind of had the in on that. They they were very aggressive and uh, had sort of uh, captured uh, the leadership for the Western Coniferous Forest Biome. But NSF told them they had to engage other universities as well. And I was down at Oregon State University. I, I worked for the Forest Service Experiment Station in a laboratory on the OSU campus. And so a bunch of us down there decided, uh, well, University of Washington had to invite other people to participate. And uh, I think they figured they had pretty good control on this, that they were gonna get the big sack of money and everybody else was just gonna be peripheral. But they had an organizational meeting for the for the biome in Pack Forest, and <laughs> a bunch of us from Corvallis went up. And uh, wow, this really sounded interesting. They were going to study the structure and function of Western Coniferous Forests, and so we decided uh, this was sort of a collaboration between federal between some of us federal scientists and the university's professors. We wanted a piece of that action. And so we got into a, a, a 
a significant uh, fistfight with the University of Washington folks over that. And the National Science Foundation finally decided that they weren't even going to have a Western conifer biome. Oh, no. Wow. You guys couldn't agree. (laughs) uh, That that brought us together, and we cut a deal with each other. (laughs) UW would get two-thirds, and Oregon State would get a third. And that diverted me completely away from what I'd been doing. Hmm. And... uh, and focused my efforts on uh, studying uh, a Douglas fir ecosystem. And I didn't have any idea of what ecosystem science was about. I didn't have any idea of what structure and function meant. But I figured, you know, I could learn fast. And so we, we then at Oregon State had to decide, okay, what kind of forest were we going to study? And there was a big fist fight over that because a lot of the foresters said, well, the plantations are the future. So that's what we should be studying. And But a bunch of us said, no, we, we need to see what a natural forest is like. And, and, you know, we really ought to focus on looking at an old growth forest. Uh, because no one knows anything about those forests, what's in them, how they work, what they do. So that's what we decided to do. And I, I happen to be a, a, a leader in, the, in the, uh, this group of scientists that coalesced around uh, a study. And we did it, we decided to study a an experimental watershed at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest, which is down in uh, Willamette National Forest, about 40 miles east of Eugene. So that's what we decided to do. And we didn't have any idea what the hell we ought to do. (laughs) And so we said, okay, we don't really have any hypotheses. We just want to learn about this thing. So let's do a water budget. Let's do a nutrient budget. And let's do a carbon budget. And that'll get us into it. And so we began to do that. And uh, right away, we, we, we began to have all kinds of discoveries that uh, ultimately became the basis for a lot of uh, good additional science. But the minute we begin to get into looking at this old growth forest, one of the things that became obvious was, holy smokes, there's a lot of dead wood. (laughs) There's a lot of big snags, and there's a a whole lot of down wood, logs on the forest floor. And, oh, my goodness, they're important. Uh, They're very important as habitat for organisms, and they're a a huge storehouse of carbon. We weren't thinking about carbon sequestration in those days, but, and so uh, anyway, we began to look at this structure of this forest in ways that no one had ever looked at before. And uh, we continued to do that for several years. uh, And then, after six or seven years, we realized 
actually less than that, three or four years, we realized we really have uh, an idea of what an old growth forest is and began to, to think about uh, uh, synthesizing that information. And uh, it was really uh, a lot of, of what I call epiphanies. Uh, dead trees are important. Uh, old growth forests are very productive. They just aren't adding a whole lot more uh, boards, uh, but they're very productive systems. And, you know, there's so much green out there. We should have known that right at the beginning, uh, because anytime you got green, you got productivity. And if you got a lot of green, you have a lot of productivity. And uh, we did some really interesting things. Uh, some of the people wanted to study uh, what was in the canopy. And so the initial thought was, well, uh, we'll cut down at some of these trees and then we can get the stuff on the ground and we can uh, study it. And so uh, we cut down one of these trees and of course it flew into 10,000 pieces scattered over, <laughs> you know, a half an acre of ground. Well, that isn't going to work. So of all things, a couple of, of women, um, graduate students from University of Oregon came up with the idea of using climbing techniques to get up mm. into the canopy. Cool. And so they developed a whole technology of that. And uh, it was, it, it, it was a lot more complicated than what most tree climbers do today. But anyway, uh, so, and, and of course, one of the things we discovered was, oh my gosh, the canopy's full of these lichens and some of them are nitrogen fixers or they host nitrogen fixing organisms. I'll put it that way. So that's a, a very significant part of the nitrogen budget for these fours. Hmm. And uh, anyway, uh, I was diverted totally in terms of my career development from uh, focusing on vegetation and the classification of vegetation. Uh, and I'd written a book with Ted Durness on the vegetation of the Northwest. And incidentally, I invited Dobby to be a co-author on that. And, and he very wisely uh said, well, you know, uh, I don't think I want to be a co-author because uh, this is a pretty good job you're doing and uh, uh, you should get the full credit for it. And if <laughs> I'm a co-author, I'm going to detract uh, mm. from you getting the acknowledgement that you should. But anyway, uh, my point is simply that I was diverted totally uh, into ecosystem science. And um, as a result of that, uh, I was asked by NSF to come back and, and function as the first program officer for ecosystem science, and, uh, which I did, and then came back to Corvallis, at which point I was made a project leader and put in charge of the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest. And we were able to develop many more grants uh, and uh, became, in fact, 
the primary location for all of the science that was done to uh, elaborate on old growth forests and how they work. So uh, that was that was a major change for me. And the other interesting thing is I I decided early in my career I wasn't going to study Douglas fir forests. <laughs> I knew everything that needed to be done about Doug, Douglas fir forests. Everybody in the world had studied them. So I was going to work in subalpine forests, which people didn't know as much about, and were a very nice environment to work in. Well, of course, the ecosystem studies were of old-growth Douglas fir hemlock forests. And I spent essentially uh, the bulk of my career uh, studying Douglas fir, uh, as well as the other coniferous forests of the Northwest. Uh, so anyway, things don't always work out the way you think they're going to. But you were studying them in a new way, I think is really important to point out, right? Like you said, I mean, uh, well, I guess Sean kind of pointed out this is this is when ecology was really burgeoning as a study, which yeah. is not something I think most people know. They might assume that that's just always been the primary objective of forest science is to understand how forests function on their own. And that's not necessarily true. That was a, I guess, relatively modern um, uh movement and you've yeah, literally I mean, written the book on it <laughs> so that's well, definitely you're, a you're right you know when <laughs> people have been studying forests for a long time right and in the northwest we've been studying forests and forest trees since you know the early 1900s but all of the focus had been on how to grow trees to produce timber and so all of the research that was done was done on, uh, you know, uh, what is it we need to know about Douglas fir in order to be able to plant it and grow it. And uh, no one had ever spent any significant time looking at the natural Douglas fir forest and saying, you know, well, what, what, what is it? How is it structured? Uh, what what does it do? We, because we were going to cut them all down anyway and convert them to plantations. That's what foresters were going to do. And so it really was a revolution. And uh, it wasn't just a revolution from a forester's point of view. Uh, you know, uh, other resource management professions had very similar, very narrow focus. For example, wildlife people were about producing game species. And if you weren't something that, you know, people wanted to go look at or shoot at, uh, you didn't pay any attention except uh, the first principle of managing wildlife was to kill the predators, <laughs> all of them, so that you had more stuff to shoot at. Uh, and similarly, the fisheries people, their whole focus was on fisheries, not on aquatic ecosystems. Uh, it was on fisheries, uh, either commercial fisheries or freshwater fisher, uh, sport fisheries. And uh, if you had a body of water that didn't have fish in it, the main thing you wanted to do was get some fish in it. <laughs> 
<laughs> Whether it didn't matter what the hell impact that had on the ecosystem, the important thing was that it had fish. And so, you know, the the natural resource professionals had had very narrow focus and the foresters just weren't interested in thinking about natural ecosystems. And they certainly were not interested in thinking about old growth forests. And if you'd ask some of them, you know, well, you know, uh, well, what, what, what about old growth forests? Are they, what are they doing? Are they doing any good? Are they habitat? You know, they, they might have had a suspicion that there was some, something going on with them, but there was no science to support. Uh, and so if you ask them, they couldn't tell you anything other than, wow, there's a lot of wood to be harvested there. That's what they're good for. And of course, the enviros were just as bad as you ask enviro, what about old growth forest? Tell me something quantitative about it. And they'd say, well, I don't know anything about it other than I'm inspired by it. You know, <laughs> I love it. You know, it feels good. And so it was amazing that uh, the work that we did uh, really opened up uh you know, not just the perspective on old growth, but certainly they did that, but also on, it opened up the perspective on forest ecosystems. And they were certainly much more than just collections of trees that you manage for wood production. So Jerry, I, I've actually had the privilege of seeing the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest before. It's a really cool place if you haven't had the chance to go um, for any of our listeners. Um, the first time you step in into one of the trails going through, I mean, just the the size of the canopy and the, uh, you know, as Jerry stated, the, the biodiversity and the understory, the greenness, as you put it, is really cool. It's a really beautiful area. And one of the first things you'll notice is the ropes and pulleys and ladder systems <laughs> that are hanging from the trees. Yeah. Just like, like, just like you said, it, it's all these climbing systems that were established there. And so I'm really curious, you've used the word structure quite a bit in your story today. What can you give us your definition of what is structure? What is a forest structure? And, and, how did that definition become or change from the way we originally viewed forests when, you know, before we really started to um, fund this through the National um, Science Foundation? Well, I think of the, the of structure as the architecture of the forest. And it has to do with all the pieces. And um, obviously, trees are structural elements, structural parts of the forest, but so are the shrubs, uh, so are the standing dead trees, the stags, they're important structures. So structure is about individual pieces of the forest. And it's also about the way those pieces are put together. And so uh, certainly, you know, I always think about these different pieces, the trees, and of course, an old growth forest has a tremendous diversity of tree sizes, but it's also very much about the way that these things are put together. And it happens that 
most natural forests are not at all homogeneous. You know, what we've done with plantations is create very structurally uniform systems where the, the structures, the trees are all the same. And they're all, if you, if you do your job right, they're perfectly arranged spatially. They're well distributed so that uh, none of them are competing and they're all got good moisture and nutrients, like any crop. Yeah. Well, nature isn't like that at all. And if you go into an old growth forest, you have big trees, you have little trees, you have standing dead trees in various stages of decay, you have logs on the forest floor in various stages of decay. You have a canopy that's actually continuous from ground to the top of the tallest tree, uh, which is very different because in a plantation, you know, the canopy is all up there. It's all uh, way up high and there isn't a whole lot between the ground and the, and the overstory canopy. And, but the other part of it is it isn't just the pieces it's also that spatial arrangement and uh, a natural forest always is patchy. It's not uniform. And an old growth forest is incredibly heterogeneous. So you have a, a very dense forest area here and right next to it is a canopy opening um, where, you know, the sun's coming through and um, so so structure is about the pieces, uh, physical pieces of the, of the forest that are out there, and it's about the way those physical pieces are arranged. And the natural forest is pretty much the antithesis of the plantation. Yeah, I think I've never been to the Andrews Forest, but I have been to a couple old growth uh, forests, particularly the one that comes to mind is the Grove of the Patriarchs. If, oh, uh, that's a good one. It is. I, I mean, I guess I have limited experience seeing old growth uh, forests on the west side just because there's so few examples. But uh, I can't think of a better example of describing exactly what you just said, which is you'll be walking through just at widely spaced massive dug fir trees you know that are a couple you know 100 feet apart and then all of a sudden you're walking through this patch of 15 year old red alder that just popped up in one of these openings and just the variation of age size structure it is you're absolutely right the heterogeneity of, of it is remarkable if you walk a straight line through one of those forests you're going to see so many different assemblies of species and structure. And it's really fascinating. And there are obviously a lot of places for critters to hang out. There's a lot of niches in yeah. a forest like that. So. so one of the things that you have written about in your, your book, uh, Ecological Forest Management, which is like an amazing textbook for all of all of this kind of stuff. And I was reading through it and you talk about how the pre-forest stage, uh, you know, compared to the old forest stage is also very important and particularly important in a place like Western Washington, Western Oregon, where you have forests that live for so long that this is going to be the first time 
in a long time that that area is not dominated by trees and is instead dominated by shrubs and flora. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit to that, like the importance of the pre-forest stage for habitat and uh, sure. you know, as, as an ecology. Be glad to. And, uh, you know, I should have been wiser sooner uh, in terms of thinking about it and its importance. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I tended to dismiss the pre-forest stage. Uh, and it was really Mount St. Helens, the eruption of Mount St. Helens, mm. that really, you know, again, provided me with an epiphany. Uh, because, uh, oh, about 10, 12 years after the eruption, I was up there uh, walking around uh, the devastated zone or the blast zone of Mount St. Helens. And I was thinking like a typical forester, thinking, you know, geez, when the tree's going to get back here and take this thing over again. When is it going to recover? Uh, and then I thought, you know, Jerry, uh, this, this area right now is absolutely alive with biological diversity. Uh, you know, there uh, are tens and hundreds of bird species and reptiles and amphibians and uh, all kinds of insects and butterflies and, of course, elk and deer. And, and so, you know, it, it really isn't uh, what I had been thinking. I was thinking, you know, it's just a, uh, a bunch of weeds out there. No, that's not the case at all. Once you begin to think about the animals that are out there, you realize, first of all, there's a lot of them a lot of diversity in terms of species. Secondly, you realize that a lot of them are habitat specialists that have to have that kind of habitat. They, can, they can't live in a closed canopy forest. And then I realized, yes, of course, because the pre-forest has all kinds of things to eat. If you're, you know, a vegetarian, uh, you've got all kinds of foliage out there. You've got fruits and nuts. If you're a hummingbird, you've got flowers. Uh, you know, basically, so there's tremendous array of foods out there. And as a result of that, you get a lot of complex food webs. And if you've got things that are eating vegetation, of course, you've got things that eat the things that eat the vegetation. And so... Uh, you, we very quickly at Mount St. Helens had a full array of, of uh, predators mm. uh, uh, of all sizes, particularly mesoscale predators, medium-sized predators, because you had a lot of small game that they could feed on. So anyway, uh, Mount St. Helens really opened my eyes. And, and I thought that day, you know, with all of this diversity here, and this is a federal forest land, and we want that kind of diversity on our federal forest land. It's important. It's part of our assignment. Uh, why is it that I want it to go away real fast? 
<laughs> I don't really want it to go away fast at all. I want to keep it here for as long as I can because uh, it's going to provide uh, the habitat for a lot of our native flora and fauna. And so uh, it led me to realize that, you know, that has to be a part of our management strategy as well. We need to be providing uh, opportunities for those conditions to exist, the pre-forest habitat to exist, rather than aggressively trying to, uh, to shorten it and simplify it by planting trees right away and then herbiciding. Uh, the herbicides are the worst of the things that we do in terms of of regional biological diversity. And of course, we don't do it on federal lands. But uh, in any case, that's an example of one of the things we used to do in order to speed up the reestablishment of trees. And I used to kid around that, you know, if foresters could do it, they would like to have a fully stocked forest back the year after they harvested the old forest. which would Wishful be a, thinking. a shame. Um, so anyway, um, I've become a real advocate for early successional habitat. And the other thing about it is that if it's uh, if it's a pre-forest or early successional habitat that developed after a natural disturbance, like the volcanic eruption or like a windstorm, and certainly like fire, you have also an incredible legacy of dead wood, Mm -hmm. which provides a very important habitat for a whole array of organisms. So uh, that that even though that early successional system, that pre-forest system, is fully exposed to sunlight, uh, it is still structurally diverse because it has that legacy of standing dead and down wood uh, from the forest that preceded it. And the whole thing then came together with the concept that nature provides for continuity, provides for continuity and structure. You carry over structure from the pre to the pre-disturbance to the post-disturbance. you carry over uh, the, the biota. Many of the many of the organisms survive and persist, and so it's uh, the nature provides for continuity rather than creating total discontinuity, which is what we always tried to do with clear cuts. You know, clean that sucker off. You know, cut it clean and. The better the, lo- the better the logger and the better the forester, the cleaner the cutover will be. That isn't the way nature works at all. Nature provides this, this significant legacy of dead and living organic materials uh, for the post-disturbance ecosystem. So anyway, it, it, it was a real... Again, you know, it's the sort of thing I should have recognized early on. I grew up camping in old growth and hunting in the Yakult Burn. So, mm-hmm. you know, I wow. 
that should have been a tip-off to me right from the first. <laughs> but, but, you know, you focus on one thing at a time and then gradually uh, broaden your focus. And um, another really interesting challenge has been trying to understand how a, a, a young forest turns into an old forest. <laughs> and how does this young forest with this canopy way up there uh, end up developing into this old forest where, in fact, most of the canopies distributed down and is actually near the bottom of the profile rather than at the top. How the heck does that happen? And that's what happens with mature forests. So for Douglas fir forests, typically there's a, typically the second century, 100 to 200 years of age is when the forest matures and it actually undergoes that transition from that single-storied young forest to this multi-layered old forest. And it all has to do with uh, the formation of canopy gaps and the development of a mid-story. Anyway, it's it's just amazing. You know, I I uh, was very lucky to be able to do a, a summer of research. Really, it was only, I think, like two weeks of research in Mount St. Helens. And Patrick, if you haven't been, I would highly recommend going. Oh, I've been. It, yeah. Very cool area, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think one of the things that struck me, kind of like what you said, Jerry, was uh, we were doing all of these... Um, small kind of forb grass assessments looking at the biodiversity plant diversity that was yeah. reoccurring and uh, in some of the areas it was directly in the plantation for anyone that doesn't know they went back following the the burn or sorry the eruption and replanted with a lot of noble fir uh, and so you you walked in and some of the areas were these 40 year old noble fir monocultures which isn't a bad thing. Uh, you know, it's just they quickly got it reforested. And then we would hike down into these canyons a mile and a half down these steep 60-degree slopes, climbing our way down. And it was way too steep to get a planting crew into. And so in these areas, they had not reforested them. And the forest was still coming back. There were still sure. trees that were 30 and 40 years old. The density of the trees were much lower. And what ended up happening was in the interstitial space, the space between these trees, the the brush and grass and flower species were just exuberant, sure. off the wall in terms of the numbers of different species. There was uh, red fescue, which is a grass I'd never even heard of, um, was growing down in the bottom of this valley. I mean, we were finding every single berry you could possibly imagine in Washington State in this <laughs> valley. Uh, we saw, you know, black bears, we saw tons of elk, everything was using this little valley, not just because there weren't a lot of humans that were willing to climb down in there, but because the habitat that it was being provided in this, in this little valley was, um, was really special and was really rare. So I think that's really cool. Um, I, I have so many questions. I don't even know where to go from here. Um, <laughs> you weren't by uh, chance working with Chris Afuli, were you? Uh, we could have been. I was with Dr. Mark Swanson, and we were working under another oh, project. You were with I Mark. think. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but there was a big project that we were kind of folded within at that time. So I guess one question, and I'm going to keep it within the subject. Somebody recently called me and said they were enjoying the podcast. And one of the things they wanted to hear more about was carbon and carbon storage. Can you give us a breakdown on the role of these, these two um, dichotomous successional stages or serial stages, early serial and late serial or old growth and their role in our carbon cycles? Well, obviously, you know, the carbon accumulations in the old growth forest are immense. Uh, these are the greatest accumulations of above ground carbon in the world. There's just no question. And, and tropical forests don't compare with them simply because the decay rate is so fast in the tropics. And so uh, you can get some pretty spectacular forests down there, but they don't sequester or store nearly the levels of carbon uh, that are stored in our northwestern conifer forests. Uh, what happens uh, naturally with, uh, with a, a, a successional sequence is that that pre-forest stage will get this legacy. And if it's a, a windstorm or if it's a fire, for example, uh, essentially all of the carbon, even though the trees die, all of the carbon will survive. We know this even with intense wildfires, that very little of the carbon is actually consumed in the fire. Uh, it's there when the fire goes out, it's still there. And so that, that pre-forest ecosystem gets that legacy, gets that uh, big pulse of dead wood uh, produced by the disturbance. Now, it decays away only very slowly. If it was a mature or an old forest that burned or blew down, and it has dominantly Douglas firs in it, uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of heartwood in those trees. And so the decay processes are going to be very, very slow. And what will happen then is the new forest isn't going to be producing any significant amount of big dead wood uh, during the first hundred years. And so this, the ecosystem itself is going to be using that legacy of dead wood uh, in a variety of ways as a source of energy and nutrients, as habitat for organisms. Uh, and uh, that that, that legacy lasts for, some of it's going to last for a couple of hundred years, but, but it's going to begin to decay away. And by the time you get to about a hundred years, you've lost a lot of it to decay processes. It's beginning to get, you know, most of the material is pretty punky. It isn't as, as um, dense as it was because of the decay process. And at that point in time, we begin to get mortality, and this is the mature forest, the second century, we begin to get mortality in the big trees, 
Now, during that first hundred years, the mortality was almost all in the little trees because it's all about competition. And so the little trees are the ones that get knocked off. They die. They starve to death because they get suppressed. So, but by the time you get into 100, 100 years or so, uh, you, you've got a, a, a mature forest of, of fairly good-sized trees. They're not old trees yet, but they're still growing a lot. But you begin to get some mortality in that overstory. Big trees begin to die. And they die from, some of them, windthrow. Uh, some of them get rot, heart or butt rot or root rots. And uh, bark beetles begin, the Douglas fir bark beetle begins to yeah. get into them. And uh, that mortality also tends to be somewhat spatially aggregated. In other words, it's sort of contagious. And you don't often don't just get one tree dead, you get a little group of trees dead, and it opens up the canopy. And... Uh, so one of the things then is that it opens up the canopy and so the understory and the, the, the shade tolerant hemlock and cedars and silver firs can now begin to move up into the intermediate levels of the canopy. And so one of the consequences of the canopy gaps is you begin to get a fill in of the canopy. And that's interesting because the Douglas fir also re-sprouts some branches where it's lost them. And so it adds to that too. The other interesting thing is, aha, the deadwood legacy has been rotting away, but with the death now of some of the bigger overstory trees in the mature forest, that begins to rebuild the store of deadwood in the forest. So it it begins to rebuild the stock of snags and down logs in the forest. And again, because these mature trees are pretty big and have a lot of heartwood, they decay very slowly. And so it isn't like, oh, they've died, I now subtract the carbon from them. No, they don't go away that way. That carbon is only released literally over over centuries. So you end up with the live trees in the mature forest still growing rapidly. You're adding an intermediate canopy, you're adding a lot of leaf area to the forest, and you're building a, rebuilding the stock of dead wood on the forest floor. So uh, the point is, the young forest had a legacy. It lives off of that legacy of dead wood. In the mature forest, it begins to rebuild the stock of dead wood. And of course, in the old forest, it you reach a, a sort of a equilibrium point with a very large stock of dead wood in that forest. And that's the that's the way it works. And because of that dynamic, the, the carbon is not just about the live trees, but also about the dead wood. 
we found at Wind River Experimental Forest, where we studied this, that uh, that 500-year-old forest has never peaked. It's Ooh. never reached a peak in carbon and begun wow. to decline. Uh, in at the time that we were studying it, uh, it was still adding more carbon every year than it was losing through decay and respiration and other processes. So my point is simply that uh, the, the stock of carbon in a forest continues to increase for several centuries. And uh, if you cut it down, uh, you essentially, uh, even if you utilize a lot of the material, a lot of carbon is released through the process of harvesting that forest and opening up the site. And you never can get it back on a short rotation. In other words, you'll never get it back by growing plantations. So the logical thing to do from the standpoint of carbon is the mature and old forest Leave them alone. Uh, they are really doing a tremendous job of sequestering atmospheric carbon. Yep. Does that answer your question? It Clearly does. And it leads, that it's understandable. It leads me to a second question because I think there's a big debate right now around when it comes to carbon storage versus carbon sequestration. And, and it seems like what you're saying is that in, in a time scale sense, since we're, we're facing this issue now, that we shouldn't be removing old growth for younger forests because they are still acting as a, a sink of carbon on the landscape. Absolutely. So then I would lead that to a second question for areas that have been harvested are our second growth forests. Would you obviously, you know, everything in moderation, but knowing that we have a carbon excess problem and we need to be sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, would you be managing some of these forests for younger forests so that we're in that high sequestration period? Or would you argue that we should be pushing more of them towards old growth and be looking at other alternatives of carbon sequestration elsewhere? Well, practically speaking, uh, you know, the whole notion that, that we should be uh, particularly asking people on private land to grow old forests, I don't think it's very reasonable. Um, and the, the, the thing that we could do in our managed forests that would really be powerful would be to use longer rotations. So the TIMOs and the REITs, the Tim, Tim, Timber Investment Management Organizations, the Real Estate Investment Trusts, that own a lot of the most productive forest land in the Douglas Fir region, use very short rotations, 35 to 40 year rotations. And you essentially sequester no carbon during that time, about all you manage to do with a short rotation is to pay back the debt 
that you incurred when you harvested that site the last time. You're just getting back close to zero. Also, mm -hmm. Douglas Fir is a long-distance runner. It's not a sprinter. And so it takes a while for Douglas Fir to get going. And at 35 or 40 years, it's just beginning to get its legs. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at, for example, a very common measure of, of productivity is, is mean annual increment. And if you look at culmination of mean annual increment, essentially Douglas fir takes off at about 25 to 35 years. And the, 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 the rate of uh, the, the mean annual increment increases immensely. It just shoots up once it's established and growing well and doesn't begin to even slow down until a hundred years or more. So if, uh, if you wanted to, you could make a huge difference in terms of the amount of carbon sequestration sequestered in our managed forests simply by using longer rotations, 100 years, 120 years, even 80 years, because you'd capture that really rapid, that period of very high productivity, uh, which Douglas fir is capable of. And if you went to, you know, rotations of, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. Longer rotations would really be powerful. <laughs> and sure. amazingly, Douglas fir forests continue to grow at a very high rate in terms of wood production uh, well into their third century. It's just really amazing. It's just a wonderful tree. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. So, does that help at all? And incidentally, I, when I talk about carbon sequestration, I am talking about carbon storage, not the rate at which carbon is being stored. Hmm. And one way to think about it is that the old forest has immense capital accumulated of carbon and a relatively low rate of, of income or input. So the annual addition is very small, relatively speaking, but it has this huge stock of carbon that is stored. The young forest, uh, foresters like to talk about its high rate of productivity. It has a very high rate uh, of, of taking in energy but it has no capital whatsoever, or very little capital. And so uh, in the young forest, uh, you just don't have much carbon sequestered at all. Uh, but you may have a very high rate at which photosynthesis is occurring and carbon is being captured. So a high rate of input, but nothing much there versus a relatively low rate of input, but an immense stock that's there. Right. 